Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello there, everybody. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks. Sitting across from me, as always, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Good heavens, Mrs. Sakamoto. You're beautiful. You know, I, I, I'm really glad that Jonathan has uh, decided to, to switch to song quotes instead of movie quotes, because with three podcasts on IBM, and yes, we're stopping at three, he probably would have been tempted to quote Tron five or six more times. Or War Games. Or War Games. He would have gone back and forth between those two. It was possibly hackers. That's another good one. It was just funny because I didn't realize that you had quoted Tron so frequently until, until someone, someone wrote in like like you quoted Tron in episode blah blah blah. Also in the in and six episodes later you did it again, and in three episodes later again you really liked Tron. Yeah, I think he listed forty one total quotes, and and maybe three or four of them were from Tron. Yeah. That was not on purpose. It's because I didn't keep track of them. Well, as a recap, in case you're listening, in case you're just tuning in. Yeah, IBM was founded and it did a lot of stuff. Yes. And we decided to do three podcasts on IBM because someone, uh, we, we've had people ask us about the history of, of IBM. We, we talk about the history of different commuting companies because uh, tech stuff isn't really about reviews. It's about technology and people. Yes. And uh, so we're sort of fascinated by how these machines got into our lives and we thought, oh yeah, let's, let's do a podcast on IBM. And then we started researching it and found out you can't do a podcast about IBM unless it's several hours long. Right. And we just don't have that kind of stamina. Uh, so, uh, although some of you, uh, kind of get peeved with us when we do more than one podcast at a time on stuff, we decided to do all our research at one time. And thank you for sticking with us. Yes. Because we finally got into, they've done so much innovation up into the, the point we're reaching today. I mean, they've, they've done mainframe computers. They've, they've introduced programming languages. They've helped the space program. They've helped the military. They introduced the Selectric typewriter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were a business machine company. Yes. So, um, they were very interested in, in all kinds of processing and, and, uh, helping people do work. Yes. So at this point, they're really going to change the work landscape because they're going to introduce a machine that will, uh, affect everyone's productivity. Yeah. So we're, we've, we've covered IBM's history all the way up to 1981 so far. Stopping, well, stopping at 1980, right? We're, yes. 1981's where we're going to pick up. And keep in mind that the companies that formed IBM actually date all the way back to the 18, the, the late 1800s. Right. At the point at which IBM was founded, there were three companies that were brought together as a business venture. There was um, Herman Hollerith's Tabulating Machine Company, yep. uh, which is really what's left of IBM today is a computing company. Yep. Uh, there was also a, a time recording company, yes. which uh, the com- IBM divested itself um, – and uh computing scale company a computing which scale also company. divested itself of and all and and those other two companies the the companies that they sold those sub to, branches yeah. are all surviving today yes. so all three were successful so they we're talking when you're talking about this a, a company that's nearly a century old of course you're going to have a lot of stuff to cover well in 1981 they they started to forge new ground now not entirely new in the sense that there were other competitors on the market in 1981 yes but it was the personal computer era ibm at this point had not entered the personal computer era its focus was as chris was saying on businesses 
Yeah, we talked about the systems stroke 360 and 370, which were uh, innovative because they weren't just the giant room-filling mainframes. They were modular computers that yes. could be added onto. And uh, part of that equipment including, included terminals. Yes. Um, and before, uh, in the in the 50s and 60s, there were machines that basically had lights and switches. And, it, you know, before the displays came on the scene, you couldn't really figure out specifically what you were doing. We, we talked about this in a previous episode a yeah. long time ago yeah. uh, about programming. And they would take a bunch of punched cards mm-hmm. and bring them into the machine. And you couldn't really tell whether the machine was going to do what you wanted it to do until it read through all the punch cards and then the lights, the appropriate lights flickered on or off. Right. And you would then know whether or not the program you had designed worked. And if it didn't work, you had to go back and go card by card and figure out where the bugs were in that system and then reprogram it. And yes. this, this took a long time. So, um, you know, there, and, and this isn't to say that IBM is the only company in innovating in the computer space, um, during this time, but, these these systems were not, you know, they had terminals at this point, and they were starting to become uh, more useful. But they were using a central computer, yeah, CPU rather so, than you know what we think of today. Right. All these different terminals were tapping into the same centralized brain, if you if you will, and mm-hmm. uh, so you can think of it as like um, uh, time sharing. Right. Often you would have time sharing systems where a terminal would be able to access the computer's processing power. Uh, but, uh, the more terminals you add, the more you had to de- divide that up. You couldn't give everyone unfettered access all the time. Instead, you would have a system that would schedule when you could access the, the, uh, the core. Now, this would go really fast. So to most people, it would seem instantaneous unless there was an unusually heavy load on the system. Um, but in effect, you've got someone controlling all the traffic. Well, let's, let's, Talk about personal computers. Now, we started seeing the personal computer uh, market develop in the 70s. Yes. And it it was with computers like the Altair. Ah, uh, the Altair. Now, the, the Altair didn't have a monitor. No. Um, but the TRS-80 did. Yeah. That was uh, Tandy's uh, machine. Uh, yep. So many of us remember that. You had a... Use the uh, floppy disks that we talked about in the last episode, which were an IBM innovation. Yep. You had a you had a, an upstart computer company called Apple that was starting Ooh. to yeah I know it's hard to believe that a computer company would be called Apple and then there's a uh, another computing company you might have heard of that uh, came out with the uh, Atari yep. computers mm-hmm. um, you had the Commodore sixty four coming out in the early the late seventies early eighties um, you had all these different the company's getting into it. Well, IBM, here you have this this old technology company that has an incredible history with computing. They get into the market in 1981. They introduced the 5150 personal computer. Ah, uh, yes. Now, if you wonder why we call them PCs or personal computers, this is why. Yeah, it's um they they were using off-the-shelf components to build this machine. They used Intel's 8 to 16-bit 8088 processor. Ah, classic. Yeah, they were looking at that. Uh, they were also looking at the possibility of using a Motorola processor or the 8086 from Intel, but they determined that those processors were actually too powerful for a personal computer. It wasn't necessary to have that kind of processing power. That's kind of funny, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you still to this day have companies that will say, you know what? We don't need to put that powerful a processor into this machine. Sometimes it's not just because, you know, it's not that they're trying to to 
mess with the consumer. It's because they'll say, well, if we put in this powerful chip, that means we have to figure out how do we keep it cool. Right, right. Right. Well, that's that's evident in laptops. Yeah, that's and that's also evident in lower cost machines and so if you go handheld to the, devices. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I mean, if you go to a, a computer store and you go, hey, that one's only three hundred dollars. You know, I could get that computer and I'll have a computer for three hundred dollars. It's like, yes, you will. And it will have a slower, less powerful processor. Right. So when they were looking at the who would provide the operating system for this machine, they first went uh, to a company called Digital Research. Mm-hmm. And they said, hey, you guys want to give us the operating system or you want to partner with us and provide the operating system for a new personal computer? And they said, no. So they went to a different upstart computer company, a company that started right around the same time as Apple, in fact, and had co-founders who were all, also shared quite a few uh, uh, qualities with the Apple co-founders. Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, I think we may have done a podcast on these guys. We in the may past. have, actually. And memory does, there is a bell ringing somewhere. That might be a fire drill. Or an angel's getting its wings. Oh, I it think, could be. Actually, you're probably thinking of the disk operating system. Yes, Microsoft's disk operating system. Now, Microsoft uh, got this operating system originally from Seattle Computer Products. Uh-huh. And uh, Seattle Computer Products had an operating system called QDOS, which... Do you know the at least the semi-apocryphal name that QDOS actually refers to? No, actually, I don't. This this may or may not be true. It's one of those things that people hold as true, but there's no actual proof. QDOS stands for Quick and Dirty Operating System. Okay. So you've got this, uh, and this was a a, a line command operating system, right? You would type commands into your uh, on your keyboard and look at the display to uh, figure out. You know, to, to actually execute stuff. Um, so Microsoft buys QDOS and then adapts it into an operating system they called PC-DOS. And then later they renamed it MS-DOS for Microsoft. Oh. So let's talk a little bit about the 5150. This was not a lightweight machine. It weighed approximately 25 pounds. Hmm. Well, it's lighter than the uh, system slash 360. Well, yeah. And I don't actually know that. You didn't, I'm just taking an educated guess You here. didn't need a hand truck to move it into your office. So there there was a benefit there, right? But it wasn't exactly, you know, it wasn't a portable system. Um, the processor speed on the 5150 was 4.77 megahertz. That's megahertz, guys. Right. You know, you have gigahertz processors. Like my my phone has a gigahertz processor. So... That's, you know, my phone is way more powerful as far as a processing standpoint is concerned than the old 5150. Of course, you know, that was 1981. So the CPU had about 29,000 transistors on it, which sounds like a lot, except now we're approaching, for the consumer market, we are now approaching 1 billion transistors on a single processor. Yes. That's a lot more than 29,000. That also shows the the whole concept of exponential growth with Moore's law. We've talked about it a lot, and you know it's hard to imagine what that really means until you think, all right, uh, we're talking 2011 now, and we're approaching a billion transistors. Back in 1981, there were just 29,000. That's that's crazy. Um, the uh, you could get the system for if you wanted a bare bones system, you could have uh, 16 kilobytes of RAM. It was expandable up to 256 kilobytes. Again, kilobytes. Uh, then it, you had uh, 40 kilobytes of ROM, read-only memory. Uh, and you could have up to two five-and-a-quarter-inch disk drives. 
Man, do you remember the five and a quarter inch discs? You do, I'm sure. Yes. All right. So guys, if you are, um, if you're one of our younger listeners, we got a lot of you out there, five and a quarter inch discs, uh, you may have seen these in, uh, books or on television or on movies or, or, or maybe you've stumbled across an ancient computer burial mound and you found some. <laughs> but, uh, the five and a quarter inch discs were these black, uh, Discs made out of a very thin plastic. Uh, some people thought that's why they were called floppy discs because you could actually fold them up. And that uh, I even remember when I was a kid, people mistakenly identifying three and a half inch discs as hard discs because they were made out of a hard plastic. Yeah, the outside. That's not. That's not true. The inside. Is the inside the same was floppy. Stuff. Yeah. So you had the, this very flexible material inside. Yeah, you weren't supposed to mess with them too much because they could be easily damaged. But that was the storage media these uh, devices used. The original. Uh, 5150 did not have a hard drive. It only had the disk drives. Um, it had a monochromatic display. That means, of course, that the computer screen could only show one color, which was um, not the, you know, Apple IIe went with green. Mm-hmm. It was like a dark green. The IBM was more of a white. Yeah. Uh, I remember that being thrown by that when I got, when we got our first IBM computer. It also could come, uh, there was an option to get a cassette drive. Yeah. With it. So you would use a cassette to store information as opposed to the floppy drive. Now, the cheapest one of the 5150s, the the one with the 16 kilobytes of RAM, cost about 1,565 bucks, which today would be around $3,704. It's a little pricey. A little pricey. The, if you wanted to trick it out, like you wanted to get the, the, the glow in the dark stuff and, you know, the, the bumping bass. Yeah. Hemi in there. <laughs> uh, no, no. If you wanted the 256 kilobytes of RAM, you got the two disk drives. You got all of that stuff. Then you're talking $6,000, which today is over 14,000 bucks. Yes. For a computer. $14,000 for a computer. Keep in mind, you can't climb into this computer and have it drive you places. <laughs> Cause I think for $14,000, it should be able to transport you beyond in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, a note about the uh, about fifty one fifty. Uh huh. Um, a lot of people not really sold on it being Van Halen's best album. Nice. I can't drive fifty five. <laughs> um, actually, I can't drive at all. So the uh, the software that you could get back in those days that mm-hmm. included stuff like the VisiCalc spreadsheet. I remember VisiCalc and Easy Writer one point zero. Easy Writer, yes. not Writer. Yeah. Um, and different thing. Entirely. Also, there was an incredible game. Really? Adventure. Oh, yes. Microsoft Adventure. That was back in the old 5150 days. So, uh, you, you could pick these up in, um, Sears or Computer Land computer stores at the time. That's where those were the outlets that were carrying it. And this created a PC compatible market. When you, if you've ever heard the term PC compatible or IBM compatible, that's talking about other companies that made computers that ran on using the same components as the IBM computers, which meant that you could run the same programs that IBM computers could run. Yes, and this has a lot to do with the market share that Windows has today. Yes. Versus Apple's market share. Yeah, you might ask yourself, why is it that when you walk into a typical office, you'll see more often than not, you'll see Windows machines everywhere and only a few Macs, if any Macs at all? I would argue there are two major reasons. Pray, hit me up with those reasons, yo. Um, first of all is that IBM was willing to license this uh, architecture yes. to other companies. Mm-hmm. So there were clones. Yes. You could send them in if you like. That's the IBM compatibles. Right, exactly. And Apple 
specifically did not want to do that. Yeah, they experimented with it for a while when Steve Jobs was kind of pushed out of the company and it did not go well. And when Steve Jobs came back, that ended toot sweet. And if you want to write in and argue that, you may, because there are people who will argue that it was starting to take off. When, but yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't an immediate change. And it was way, way after this point. This yes, point is yes. where IBM uh, had established itself in the marketplace. But the other thing that I think significantly contributed to this is marketing. Because IBM, as we have touched on in two podcasts already, is to some degree, well, it's in their name. Business machines. Yes. They are synonymous with uh, computing power for companies. Yes, they had they had a long-standing reputation as being the company to go to for your technology needs if you were a business. And people, even though they w- were available at Sears and other outlets, people didn't buy these machines for their homes for the most part. No, small business owners started to pick them up. Business owners were buying them. Small business owners, larger business owners – uh, they were they were gobbling them up to use at work for work stuff. You didn't have people buying gaming PCs because there you weren't didn't any games out there. Do that. that, yeah. If you were buying games, you were buying them. Honestly, the very early days of computer games. Can you remember these days where you would go into a computer store and there'd be a bulletin board, a cork bulletin board, and up there you would see pinned. They're little plastic bags that would c- contain a disc and a sheet of instructions. And that was what computer games looked like on the earliest days. Yeah. I remember those days. That was before, you know, you really, we could all do a, a discussion about the, how, how computer games evolved from a marketing standpoint. It would actually be pretty fascinating because, like I said, those early days you would go in and it would be, it might even be a local programmer who built that game and then just copied it onto as many discs as he or she could. And then contacted, say, a hobby store and sold them through the hobby store. Later on, you would get into the more, the larger distributing models of companies forming around creating video games. I think Richard Garriott was one of the first people to really demand that his games be packaged in a box as opposed to in a, in a Ziploc bag. But, uh, getting back to the, the, the IBM, the personal computer, yeah, it, it really did well in small business and large business markets. It started to pick up in the home market as well for more affluent people, obviously, because, you know, asking folks to, to drop $1,500 on a computer, that's a lot of money. That's you, true. You know, even, if, even if you were just saying $1,500 today without taking inflation into account, that's still a lot of money to ask for a computer. Well, yeah, people, people complain about that all the time. Yeah. About, Computers that cost more than a thousand dollars. I see that all the time. Well, yeah. that's just too much. Well, and it's why and it's it, why some people think cheap. of Apple as being a a boutique computer system as opposed to you know a, a a personal computer that you would normally think of. People think of Apple as being almost elitist because the products are more expensive. Uh, Although you could also just just as easily argue, well, you're paying for quality. You know, you're paying for the quality of the parts in there, and because the computer market on the PC side is more piecemeal, that you can put together computers based upon whatever off-the-shelf components are out there. That you also are, uh, you know, just just as the parts come from all different parts of the world, uh, the quality spans the entire spectrum between. Really awesome computers and really, really kind of not so awesome, crappy machines. Right. Well, something that was, there was something holding it back. What's that? That would be the operating system you were just talking about. Ah. Because DOS is not necessarily user friendly. 
It can be yeah. if you're willing to learn. I learned DOS. it. I I actually I was a I was a DOS fanboy in that I had bothered to learn all the commands and it was it came naturally to me. I, granted, I was learning DOS in that time of my life when I was when that the language centers in my brain were really receptive to stuff. Like if I were trying to learn it today, I'd be like, "What the heck? This is give me give me a graphic user interface. This I, I can't no." Ah, and then I'd run out of the room. Right, right. Or I'd throw the machine across the floor. I mean, it really, six on one, half a dozen on the other. Right. Well, yeah, the, uh, you know, later on in the 80s, in the early, in the early mid 80s, um, <laughs> not in the, want to just give a year? <laughs> 1984. Yeah, I would say, I would say 84. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, the PC was out for a couple years before Apple's Macintosh hit the scene. Yeah. Before yeah. the Amiga hit the scene. Uh, Commodore's Amiga before, uh, the Atari ST hit the scene yeah. with graphical user interfaces. Yeah, the night, 19... Xerox had been working on the graphical yes. user interface. Yeah, that was back in the 70s, actually. Before, much before yeah. this. But they weren't on these devices. No, the personal computers were all these line-based, uh, um, you, you would actually type commands in to make things happen. Uh, yeah, 1983, IBM released the Personal Computer XT, which yes. provided more memory. It also in- introduced the dual-sided diskette drive, um, and it had a, a fixed disk drive, which we now really refer to as a hard drive. Yeah. Um, and it, they also introduced a color <laughs> printer. And person in the business side, IBM was also uh, uh, doing things with personal banking machines and robotic systems. They they were working. They while we're talking about personal computers, keep in mind IBM on the on. On their research and development side, they haven't stopped. No. They're still pouring lots of money and time and effort into research and development. They're coming up with really cool stuff. We're mostly focusing on the personal computers for this podcast, but that doesn't mean that that was where IBM's entire focus lay at the time. Yeah, definitely if you're interested in learning all the stuff they were doing this time, and it is rather fascinating if you like computer history. The Computer History Museum and IBM's archives are great free places to look for information on that. And we're, we're, we're skimming over some of that except for the, some of the really interesting tidbits on company culture and things. Uh, but I'm glad that you left one of the things off. What's that? that happened in 1983. Remember when we were just talking a minute ago about how personal computers were mostly for businesses at this point? Yeah. Um, I would argue maybe except for really hardcore computer enthusiasts. Yeah. And we had quite a few of those. Yeah. From dating from the sixties and seventies into the eighties. Sure. They came out with IBM decided to come out with a computer that was really designed to be an affordable in home computer. And they called it the PC Junior. Yeah. Yeah. It, also known as you remember its nickname? No. The Peanut. And they had this is a period of time and this enabled Apple to get a foothold with some people. This was a period of time when IBM had the coolest commercials. I remember this growing up where they had the um, uh, Charlie Chaplin impersonator person mm-hmm. talking about the PC and the PC Junior and how easy the PC Junior was to, to use. Now, I remember it had a little chiclet keyboard, mm-hmm. which was kind of common on the less expensive computers where it had the rubberized keys. Right. The thing bombed. Yeah. Not, not again. You know, people will write in and say no, it didn't. It's they sold a lot of them, but it just wasn't what the PC was, right? And you know, it, it was a good entry into the home market, I would say, but not 
what you would think of as a really successful product launch now. Right. Uh, and it's, it, it's flaws were obvious enough to a lot of people that people ridiculed it. Sort of like Microsoft Bob. So let's talk about 1984 for a second. This is a big year in personal computing in general, right? Oh, we're, we're not talking about uh, Van Halen ha- albums no, again? No, we're not talking about Van Halen albums again. Okay. Although 1984, I wore it down. Yeah. Might as well jump. Um, Which, ironically, before 5150. Yeah. So 1984 uh, rolls around, and then um, you may have seen the infamous commercial that aired during the Super Bowl in 1984. The Apple commercial that uh, was for the Apple Mac computer, Macintosh, I should say. It was the full name, Apple Macintosh. Yes, we think of it now as the Mac Classic, the all-in-one little black-and-white box Yeah, um, that used the Motorola processor. Um, and uh, actually, you know what? We I think we left that out because in 1982, IBM actually took a stake in Intel. Yeah. Um, this is where it gets, they start sort of crossing over because, um, the Macintosh, they were, for their marketing, they were pointing out that it was a, it had a GUI, graphical user interface, a yep. uh, GUI. Um, it was easier to use, they were saying, mm-hmm. than the IBM PC. Cause look at all these books that Charlie Chaplin wants you to read. Yeah. Um, well, and their commercial made it look like, IBM was this Orwellian big brother exactly. uh, organization. And what they, they were, were doing huge. They were a huge company. Yeah, they were playing up the fact that IBM had this this hundred year old history, nearly a hundred year old history. Exactly. That it was permeating all aspects of business, that they were dominating and that they were oppressive. They were essentially turning IBM's reputation against IBM. Exactly. And then said, what about the rebels? What about the people who don't want to conform, who don't want to just march in step with everyone else? Here's the machine for you, Apple Macintosh. Ironically, now those people are using, (laughs) if you're marketing to that group of people, you're talking Linux. Yeah. Yeah, because th- Apple ended up saying, hey, you know that Orwellian thing? We do it way better than IBM ever did. It's um, <laughs> a little commentary from Jonathan. Um, well, and and not completely unwarranted because Apple is known for having closed a closed-off system. system. Yeah. Again, their advantages and disadvantages – we've talked about this countless times in the podcast. Their advantages sure. and disadvantages to both right. uh, options, but – so in this case, it's sort of ironic. Yeah, and so that really stepped up this uh, this competition between IBM and, and Apple. IBM in 1984 introduced the PC AT, which the that. that was the most powerful personal computer at that time. And uh, also, they started to introduce the PC Network, which was a system that allowed com- customers to link up to 72 PCs together. So this is the the precursor, really, of a local area network. Um, and it showed that IBM was already thinking ahead, <clears throat> excuse me, ahead to these systems that would allow consumers and, and businesses, really, to create a collaborative environment. Just as a historical note, of course, uh, DARPANET already exists at this point. It had been created for government use uh, back in the uh, the 60s yeah, and 70s, yeah. really. Um, and then, of course, for educational institutions. But again, it's not something that the average person uses like it, like he or she does today. Yeah, computer networks were pretty rare. You would usually only find them in proprietary systems. So you would have this, and, and a lot of them were more like time-sharing systems where you had terminals that tapped into a centralized computer. It wasn't a true network in the sense of each, each uh, outlet is its own computer that then communicates with other computers on the system. 
Right. Ethernet was invented in the early 70s, but you wouldn't find an Ethernet port on an IBM PC introduced in 1982. It's just yeah. th- th- those technologies took a while to come together. Right. So do you do you happen to know what kind of processor the AT had on it? No, I don't. The 8286. Ah. The 286 processor from Intel. It had uh it actually up the speed. Remember the old speed of the the PC was uh four uh, the processor speed was 4.77 megahertz. The 286 boosted that to 6 megahertz. So it was a more powerful processor. The 286 was also the first IBM machine that my family owned. Mm-hmm. IBM 286. Um and now we 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 can start skipping ahead some. We we spent a good amount of time. Do you have something specific you wanted to point out? Um since since we've been focusing primarily on the computers, I I wanted to note a couple again kind of interesting things. In 83, um IBM was using scanning tunneling microscopy. Yes. For, uh, to create three-dimensional images of, uh, on, of the atomic surfaces of gold, silicon, nickel, and other solids. Which is just an interesting note that they were working on this kind of technology. But at that scale, again, these are the laying the foundations for tiny little processors yes. for na- stuff on the nano scale. Again, this is going to happen. They're also going to play with development. That, that scanning, tunneling microscope in just a few years to do something clever. So we'll talk about that in just a second. That's but, a 90. Yeah. So in 1988, uh, they, uh, IBM introduces the first computer running on the 386 processor. And in 1989, they are the first computer company to use Intel's 486 processor, although it would be a couple um, years before that would hit the, uh, the actual consumer market. Uh, 1990, they introduced Prodigy. Oh, wait, wait a minute. Wait, 89? 90. Oh, 90. I'm 90 sorry. is Prodigy. Because I was going to, uh, I saw one other thing I wanted to mention for 1989. Oh, all right. Well, um, that's a storage thing. Oh, okay. Did you notice that they, uh, at, oh, there's so much information. Yeah, no, I, at this point I was skin, skimming, to be honest. There's uh, cool. so much per year. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. IBM is so big by the late 80s that it has multiple divisions. It's got presence worldwide. They got scientists. Uh, you know, packed in like sardines. They have R and D centers all over the place. Well, some uh, some scientists and engineers were able to set a new world record in uh-huh. magnetic storage. They were able to store a billion bits of information on a single square inch of disk space, a gigabit. Wow! In 1989, that's pretty impressive. And I'm sure that amount of storage cost you a lot of money compared to how much it would cost now. All right, so getting back to Prodigy. Prodigy was an essentially an online service provider type of service. You could log in and go shopping on it, or you could l- read the, the latest news. So it was kind of a precursor to the Internet, right? Yeah. And so – OSP. We were yes. talking about uh, – uh, we talked about online service providers a yeah. long time ago. Yeah, so things like AOL and Prodigy both kind of uh, had had their uh, their roots in that – but in 1990, they also there, there was also an interesting development. We, you talked about the scanning tunneling microscope. That's when scientists began to use it to manipulate individual atoms. Yes. So you work at IBM. I do. You're a hoity. This is a metaf- This is just hypothetical case. Oh, hypothetically. Okay. I got it. It's 1990. You're a scientist. You work for IBM. You have just figured out how to manipulate individual atoms. What do you do with that knowledge? I don't know. I, you know, 
create world peace, solve the hunger problem. That's so wrong. That's really? not what you do. That's not what I do? What no, would I you do? You use the scanning, scanning tunneling microscope to arrange atoms so that they spell out the letters IBM on the atomic scale. Yeah, okay, that sounds yeah, like fun. Kind of sounds like it'd be kind of neat. This, uh, this was actually pretty cool, and there are pictures. We've talked about this before on the podcast, but there are pictures on the web of IBM spelled out in individual atoms, and they were all pushed around by a scanning tunneling microscope. Yes. Yeah, the 90s uh, were actually sort of a difficult period for IBM. In in several ways, yeah. They tried to introduce the PC radio in 1991, which was a battery-powered mobile computer, and it could actually transmit data via radio or telephone or cellular communication. The idea here was that IBM was trying to make computers that people who had to go out on service calls or who had to be remote from a centralized location could still use a computer system without having to just, you know, save up all the data and wait till you got back to the office to to type everything up. Uh, but, you know, that it was, a, again, a precursor to the mobile computers of today, but didn't do incredibly well. They also introduced the PS2L40SX. Do you know what that was? The very no. first IBM laptop. Oh. It was enormous. Yes. It was. Well, a lot of them were back then. It was then. technically portable. <laughs> so was the first Apple laptop. Right. It was technically really? portable, but, um, but yeah, I wouldn't recommend carrying it for very long. Uh, and it could hold, it had up to 18 megabytes of memory. Uh, it had an internal modem that worked at a 2400 baud and a, a fax modem that could go up to 9600 baud. Um, so it was, you know, it was meant for people who did a lot of business travel, uh, and needed to have a computer with them when they traveled around. Same reason why we have laptops today, really. It's just that it was uh, a little bulkier back then, a little boxier, a little heavier, significantly heavier. Yeah. 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 But, um, yeah, there are, there are a lot of things going on here too. Yeah. Um, OS2. Yes, OS2. We, was- we didn't really. We didn't really talk about the OS because that was more of a – most people operated with the DOS system. And it, you could get uh, a, a business operating system, the same one that was running on IBM's business computers. But th- those tended to be more expensive and a lot of people just opted for the less expensive MS-DOS version. So in addition to OS2, um, IBM is also working in a partnership with Motorola to create uh, – Reduced instruction set computing chips, uh, the PowerPC chips, which were in Macintosh computers in the late uh, in the late nineties, mm-hmm. um, which replaced the Motorola sixty eight thousand series chips used in the in the eighties uh, and early nineties. Mm-hmm. You know, Intel, even though they had a stake in Intel for a while, they were com- using the uh, complex instruction set computing. So you have they're competing on computing. Uh, with Intel on the, on the processors, they're competing in operating systems with Windows. This is a difficult time for IBM. Yeah. Uh, because they're having struggles where, you know, they've, they've been the dominant player in the market for so long, but Intel came along, Apple's come along, and, yeah, and Microsoft got, has come along, and these guys are not going away. And you've got all of these computers now tough. that are out there that are based on this IBM architecture. So IBM branded computers aren't necessarily the top dog anymore. Right, you've got all the you've got all these different options if you want a PC, like a Microsoft a PC that's running Microsoft uh, uh, operating system. You don't have to buy it from IBM. 
And right. so IBM kind of got out of that game a little bit, even to the point where their ThinkPad line, which was their notebook line, they ended up licensing out to Lenovo. Yeah, they, they essentially divested themselves of the personal computer business, yeah. more or less, yeah. uh, when they decided to let Lenovo take that over. And I think a lot of people, uh, myself included, were a little taken aback by that. Yeah, Because I mean, they said... IBM getting out of the personal computer business? Well, we got to remember that Chris and I grew up in a time where IBM was almost synonymous with personal computers. In fact, that's what we really knew them for anyway, because we were too young to be using the, the business stuff apart from the Selectric typewriter. Um, so for us, IBM meant personal computers. And when they got out of it, you're like, what else do they do? And then you start looking into it. And like, oh, everything. That, that makes sense. Um, you know, they, they introduced a lot of stuff in the nineties too. They introduced the three and a half inch disk drive. Uh, they also, uh, in the nineties, there was a big, big thing that, that made the news worldwide, which was the infamous match between Deep Blue and Gary Kasparov, the, the chess champion. Well, Deep Blue was an IBM computer named because uh, IBM's color is blue. They're known as Big Blue. So Deep Blue uh, went up against Kasparov on the first series of games. Kasparov came out the winner, but there was a rematch, and uh, Deep Blue ended up defeating Kasparov. And this kind of showed IBM's um, work into developing artificial intelligence, computer processing ability, uh, all of those sort of things. And it's it's work that IBM continues to this day. The Watson computer is another example of that, where they've put their thought together about how can we create a machine that understands semantics, that can can decide upon an answer based upon the probability that it's the correct one. How can it judge between various responses to an, a query and pick the one that's the most appropriate? These are not small challenges, and it's the sort of stuff that IBM research and development concentrates on now. It's the stuff that drives our technology to the next level. So it's it's stuff that we may not see in the consumer market for years and years, but it's it's the pioneering work that's necessary for us to move forward. Yeah, definitely. definitely. So, and, you know, IBM never really got out of the business of making very large computing uh, hardware for organizations of all kinds. I was about mm. to say businesses, but really you know, all sorts of organizations, um, because that kind of equipment is necessary for computing high end projects, you know, yeah. even still doing today, doing Herman Hollerith's work of tabulating data. Yeah. Um, you know, they, for a long time, they, they have, uh, participated in calculating results for the Olympics, uh, all kinds of projects, the census, uh, on and off, um, you know, just amazing stuff. And you don't really, th- these are things that you don't see like you do the computer on your desktop. Um, but it's, it's certainly true that IBM is still a dominant player in, in the industry. And even as we touched on in the last episode, the, uh, the subtle advances they were making and the ability for computers to recognize human speech. Yeah. Um, you know, we were kind of chuckling about it because it was, it was years, before Watson ever made its appearance on Jeopardy, decades, really. Yeah. Uh, but it was able to, you know, there was a, a device that they came up with that could, had a thousand word vocabulary and could transcribe speech within, you know, a 91% accuracy rate. That's, you know, these things, these little steps add up to big advances in computing in just more than a hundred years. I think I can sum that up with that's one small step for an <laughs> international business machines company, one giant leap for me. 
Let's wrap this up, shall we? We have talked about IBM for three podcasts, and now we are done for the time being. Four, if you count the Watson podcast. Um, so, guys, this was really fascinating for for us on our end. We really enjoyed being able to dive down and and look at the rich history of this company. If you have any companies you think we should concentrate on next, well, not immediately next. We're going to have yeah, to take a break from the business side for a little bit. Yeah, we'll have a few other episodes that relate to other stuff. But if there's another company you think that we should treat with this sort of uh, this sort of in-depth coverage, let us know. You can let us know on Twitter or Facebook. Our handle there is TechStuffHSW. Or you can shoot us an email. And that address is TechStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you